All right, boys and girls, episode 74 with Lyle McDonald is about to start. And this interview has a lot, a lot, and a lot of information about freaking everything. We went everywhere. We went from hormones, women's health, to doctors and naturopath doctors, like every, we just went everywhere. And when I recorded this, the entire interview was two and a half hours. So I'm going to break this up into two parts. So you're going to have to listen to the second part a little bit later. I don't know when I'm going to release it, but uh, keep your eye out for it. So let's just get this thing started because we got a lot to cover. And hopefully you enjoy it as Lyle has a lot of great information. Here we go. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I'm your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and joining me today is Lyle McDonald. Say hello. Hey, good to be here, Rafael. Perfect. So I like to always start off with all my guests and ask them, what do you got planned for the weekend? Um, editing and working at, and training. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, for the last eh, two and a half years now, I've been writing this book on women's physiology that I kind of wish I'd never started because it's just nightmarishly complicated in a way I can't even begin to explain. Um, the, the writing is finally done on the book, so I'm in, in the throes of editing, which is almost as bad. So so I'll basically be alternating between uh, training, editing the book, and playing uh, Batman Arkham Knight on my PlayStation when I need a break. So, That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Sweet. Um so let's uh, get into the first question. Can you tell the audience who you are, what you do, and how did you get into this industry? Um, so my name is Lana McDonald. I uh, I suspect mo- many people listening to your podcast may know me for either good or for bad. Um, I got involved in this uh, probably in my teens when I was 15. I kind of grew up as a very inactive video game playing child. This would have been, you know, the, the late 70s, mid 80s. Um, both parents were musicians. So, I mean, I played sports, but it wasn't kind of my thing. Got to high school, had mandatory athletics, got into cycling, martial arts, kind of started just started lifting weights, liked it. And I don't know, it was just one of those things that kind of grabbed me. Uh, I went to UCLA to get a degree in physiology. And at that point I got into competitive inline skating, rollerblading, and basically just kind of wanted to be a better athlete than I was. Um, you know, I read all the magazines, I read all the ads, and I wanted it to be true. I wanted the magic to to be there, and I would go harass my my physiology professors who would tell me what BS most of it was. And I, I just kind of got into the library, started doing my own research, got out of school. The internet was just starting. This was 94, 95. Like every college graduate, I thought I knew everything about everything and just started writing a lot. Some of the early Usenet groups, people liked what I had to say, started writing for websites. Um, this would have been the late 90s. I uh, wrote my first book on low-carbohydrate uh, low diets, um, which was a monster called The Ketogenic Diet, which nearly killed me. And the long and the short of it is I've been in the industry forever since since the internet started so I'm coming up on 20 years now, more than 20 years. I think I've written 12 books. 
Um, there's people now, guys like Eric Helms, Brad Schoenfeld, who are like, tell me that, you know, they read my books or my articles when they were an undergrad. So it definitely makes me feel old. So, you know, I'm just kind of now just keep doing what I'm doing. I tend to be, you know, for good or for bad, I think I was one of the first people to really kind of push research and evidence-based stuff in the nineties when that just wasn't really a thing. Um, and, you know, nobody really wanted to listen at that point. Uh, and now, of course, we're in it, – it's it certainly increased. I mean there's still a lot of quote-unquote bro science out there. But, um, you know, there's certainly a, a, an increasing number of folks who either are using research or, you know, and Brad, Brad, Brad Schoenfeld, Eric Helms, even Alan, you know, are doing research uh, and, and very – very relevant research because, you know, they come from a bodybuilding or a training background. So they're doing a lot better studies than used to be done. So, you know, you can either thank me or blame me for, for some of that. Uh, I think we're going to get to a point where if you don't have a PhD in the field, you don't get an opinion. But, but anyway, so that's kind of the, the, I've just been around forever um, for good or for bad. You know, if you go Google my name, I I'm everywhere. Cause I've just been around, I've been on the internet since it started. So that's kind of me. That's awesome. Uh, so I'm going to go right into the very beginning of your story. And you said you were a gamer, right? Oh, yeah. I, I grew up on video games. I was there in the late 70s when, you know, kind of the arcade scene started. Um, I actually remember my dad talk about changes. He used to like he used to be able to take kids to the bar and I would go to the bar with him back when they had like the <laughs> light gun games, like the, the early skeet shooting and stuff. I remember when Pong and uh, Pac-Man, like I remember all that. I lived in the arcades in the 80s. I've been a gamer since as long as I can remember, and I still, I still game to this day. So that's awesome because I think this past Friday, uh, Super Nintendo came out with their remastered edition, and I was lucky enough to go grab one. And my wife was trying to force me to wake up super early and wait in line. (laughs) I'm like. No, that's not happening. And I yeah, ended up getting one right in the afternoon out of nice. uh, like a drugstore. And they didn't even have like an electronic section. Their electronic section was a rack of Xbox games. How and bizarre. It, yeah, and I just asked one of the workers, I'm like, oh, did you guys get one of these? They're like, oh, let me check the back. And they came out and boom. I was like, perfect, playing Super Mario all weekend. Yeah, this will probably ruin my nerd cred. I've actually, the, the Nintendo systems I never owned, I went from Intellivision way back in the day. I got into computer games, Apple, kind of in the 80s. So I missed missed NES, Super NES. I went to Sega Genesis in college, and then I went to just PlayStation 1, 2, 3, 4. Um, I played a lot of the NES games in emulation, but um, but it, it's, it's fun watching. I saw another one. They're releasing a Commodore 64 collection like that, which was another big gaming system in the 80s especially. So... Um, I mean, you can play all that stuff in emulation now, but it's not the same. It's not the same without yeah. the control um, that that really so so seeing them collect all of that is certainly a good for for folks my age who want to go revisit their childhood as they get old, which uh, happens. What do you think about like the VR playing system? Uh, you know, it doesn't interest me. I'll be quite honest. What I've seen, and I haven't, I can't say I've, I've followed it. It doesn't look interesting to me. Like they did, they even did a VR Batman game, and I love, yeah. you know, I love the Batman games. The Arkham, you know, I, I will still replay uh, Arkham Asylum, City, and, and Night repeatedly. But all it was is like thirty minutes of wandering around the mansion and gearing up as Batman. It seems like the games right now are not there, and the technology seems to make people want to throw up. 
I think it'll get there. Like, I think, I certainly think that we will get to that immersive level um, one way or another. But I mean, my God, I remember in the early 90s, you know, when cyberpunk first became a thing, they were working on VR goggles and the helmets were too big and they couldn't really do it. And I think as the tech gets better, you know, once they can do it as like a Google Glasses level of uh, of eyewear rather than a huge helmet. Um, but it's just not something that, I don't know, particularly appeals to me yet. Maybe when the maybe when the games get better um, or the technology comes along a little bit better. But I just keep hearing these horror stories because there's something about the way it, the brain perceives head motion versus body motion. And I just hear about people throwing up or getting nauseous playing it. And that doesn't sound like much fun to me. <laughs> yeah, because I was listening to another podcast with the co-founder of Wired Magazine. And he yeah. was saying that like VR is cool, but there's no expert in the field. It's so like in its infancy and yeah. yeah, like people are throwing up, like there's just too many variables to make it perfect for some like 13 year old kid to be like, all right, I'm going to go play call of duty with my VR set. Right. Like, I mean, you know, you might as well just make it essentially a, uh, an eyeglass level television set. Like I could yeah. see that being the screen, which would be great for me. You know, like I'm, I'm 47, my eyes are going like, I can't see, I can't see the text or the subtitles unless I sit very close to the television, you know, having an eyeglass set, uh, for gaming, for personal gaming makes sense, but trying to, excuse me, make it into virtual reality, um, just seems like it's not. It's not there yet. I've seen it. You know, porn is trying to do VR as well, and it just looks weird right now. There's just something about the way the way things scale that it doesn't quite look real. Like I think we'll get there. I think we'll absolutely, but it's going to be another another decade or a major breakthrough. Yeah. Um, let's get into it because like we're totally going off track. Um, speaking of your new book. Um, we're probably going to get into some of the Facebook questions, but I was curious, like, yeah. what made you want to write a whole book about women's health? Well, it, <laughs> I don't know that anything made me want, well, want to is, the, is a loaded word. So in 2014, um, I'd come out of kind of some personal drama and stuff that I got worked out. And someone had plagiarized one of my earlier books, uh, My Guide to Flexible Dieting, which I just want to note, you know, I wrote that book in 2004 and nobody was ready to listen. It's like, what do you mean breaking your diet can help? What do you mean you don't have to diet like a maniac? And of course, now in 2017, that's all you hear about. Um, at least I'm not bitter. But anyway, so somebody, <laughs> this, this person in the field, uh, pl basically plagiarized my book, claimed to have pioneered flexible dieting, probably made more money off her book than I ever did. And that really pissed me off. So I decided that I needed to update that book. And it's it's rough. I mean, I wrote it 13 years ago, and I've certainly changed a lot of my, my thoughts on it. And I was like, well, I should add this section and this section. And suddenly it kind of turned into this, this the, the general fat loss book I've probably needed to write. Like I've written a lot of specific diets, but I need to write, I've needed to write like a general fat loss book. So I just started pulling stuff in and pulling stuff in, and it was about 90% done. And I was like, huh, I got to write about women's stuff now. And this is a, a, a topic I've been putting off for like a decade because I knew, I knew how hard it would be. Like I knew, you know, we knew, I knew observationally the, the issues women had, but I just hadn't really delved into it. So I started and I was like, ah, I shouldn't take more than a couple chapters or a section. And, 
And then I started to talk about it on Facebook and people kind of went nuts. Well, the women went nuts in the sense of we need this information. There's nothing out there. And I thought, well, I should just spin this and do its own book because it'll be faster. <laughs> yeah, two and a half years later. So I just kind of fell into it. And I mean, it needed to be written. There's there's some stuff out there. Most of what I found is very clinically oriented, like sports, sports injury, sports medicine. Um, it's not really written for practice. Um, there's a couple of books out there that aren't very good that I won't name. Um, and I just, you know, as I got deeper into the research, the deeper I looked, the, the more complicated it got because women's physiology is so much more complicated than men's on every level. So I don't know if want was the right word. It kind of developed. And certainly I'll be glad that I did it. I'll be glad when it's done. Um, and even the, the worst part of that is the book got so long, I, I'm having to make it to two volumes. Volume one, which is what I'm finishing up now, is on just nutrition, diet, and fat loss. Training is going to be a second book. And, and the idea of going back and actually having to almost write another book on this fills me with terror. Um, but there's just that much information. There's that many differences and that many issues that women are either unaware of or their coaches are unaware of. And what's what's happened is over, you know, since the 70s, which is when women really started to enter sport in the U.S. anyway, the coaches were men, the athletes were men, the research was on men. And everyone just assumed that women were little men. And over the last, well, 40 years now, it's becoming clear that in just about any physiological system you want to talk about, there, there are differences of one sort or another. So many of the things that will work for men or work for some women can be extremely detrimental or even damaging to, to a lot of women in terms of menstrual cycle dysfunction and bone density loss. There's just issues that men don't, don't face that women do. So, so this thing has turned into a tome where like the first half is really just background physiology on the differences. And then the second half is just all applied in terms of, you know, fixing, working around women's issues, setting up diet. I've got supplements uh, training stuff, um, all kinds of things that, that some of which is general, you know, plateau breaking, but some of which is very women specific because of things like the menstrual cycle, birth control, polycystic ovary syndrome, menopause. Um, in my typical way, I'm trying to cover everything and that's why it's already over 400 pages. So this will be my longest book by far. So wow. anyway, yeah, it's a monster. <laughs> Um, I was going to bring up like the whole like people plagiarizing like I just don't <laughs> understand why like you, you should like give credit to someone that's better than you and then you automatically associate yourself with someone better and then people start yeah. seeing you as an expert too. Yeah, I, I don't disagree and I've been plagiarized a couple of times in very major ways and I don't know. It's it's there's a lot of comp competition in the industry. Um, a lot of people justify because I'll be the first one to admit for a number of reasons. Like I spent a lot of years being an asshole to people, and I you know taken responsibility and I've tried tried to get better about that. And I've even had people when I got plagiarized and I talked about it say, "Well, Lyle's an asshole, so it's okay." Well, no, being an asshole doesn't give someone the right to flat out steal your work, um, but. There's just, I get, there's a lot of competition. I get it. I always try to give credit. There's people 
who are either my personal mentor, who, you know, a lot of my ideas are not new, certainly even in flexible dieting. I wasn't the first to present these. I was kind of the first, I think, to formalize them. But, you know, I, you know, Dan Duchesne, he was writing about giving his, his dieters two-week breaks to try to raise metabolism and all this stuff long before I did. I just kind of formalized it and made it more well-known. Um, so yeah, I, I always try to, and there are people certainly in the industry that will will credit me, but there's still a, a many that won't. And and part of it, and I get this, is a lot of these concepts are technically, you know, they're in the literature, they're in the research. Because uh, I even talked to a lawyer when I got plagiarized the first time, and he said the issue is that this isn't necessarily new intellectual property. Like it's not like I wrote a fiction book that had a new concept or character or story, like technically these people could get into the research and dig up this information. We know better. Come on, let's, let's be honest. The people that are plagiarizing it, they're not doing that and probably wouldn't, wouldn't be able to, but regardless, it, you know, a lot of these concepts, it's tough to say, well, this is who invented it. Even if my book was 13 years ago, but regardless, like I said, at least I'm not bitter. Um, you know, I, I've joked the women's book, will probably be plagiarized for the next decade. Um, it's actually been really interesting. When I sort of announced this book in eh, midway through 2014, if you go back and look, there has been an enormous increase in articles about this topic. Enormous. And I don't know if I spurred that or not, if I'm being too egotistical for my own good, but sure seemed like an odd coincidence. Um, but yeah, people, people will be ripping this off for... A long time because I've found, I found research. Uh, oh, good lord! The the things that and most of it will just depress women. I've joked that I'm I'm coming out with a supplement to help with um with depression and that the purpose of this book is just to make women realize just how screwed they are. Because um, there there's just stuff that happens in women's bodies that you read this and just go really like really. Um, an old joke of mine, you know, with respect to dieting is you know, your body hates you which isn't true. Your body wants to keep you alive, but it slows metabolism and makes fat loss harder. And I'm, you know, so it's like your body hates you. Women's bodies hate them more. I mean, they, it's really from a fat loss, fat gain, everything perspective, women's bodies are geared far more than men to store fat when it can and not lose fat as easily. And there's just all kinds of crazy shit going on. And I've found my, my reference list alone, I think, is 26 pages. Oh, man. That's in, like, an eight-point font. Like, this has hundreds and – like, I have found every paper that's ever been done because that's just how my psycho brain works. So, yeah, we'll see. Um, did you get any flack for being a man that's writing this book? Because I feel like – you know, say, like not, a – go on, sorry. Oh, not yet. I've heard – I've had a couple people, you know, that, that will be, I think, there, there can frequently be a tendency of, oh, pff, I hate it when men talk about the menstrual cycle because we don't have one. And, and I acknowledge that early in the book. Um, I think there will be backlash when it's, when it's done, um, especially because that's a suggestion. Like, I think I should give it a pink cover because that would just be <laughs> – maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Um, I think there will be some of that, and that's perfectly fine. Um, I, I anticipate that some of the, the the real extremist kind of feminist websites will probably excoriate the book, especially because I have the nerve to success that there are biological differences between women and men, and that's just not acceptable in the current political climate. But whatever, publicity is publicity. So I'm sure there will be some, but I don't care. 
You know, I, I, I got, I got over caring that everybody liked my work a long time ago. There's people that will dismiss it just because it's me. They've done it. There are people online right now that are bitching about me going, well, while such an asshole, his information should just be dismissed. No, there's people that I like that I think are idiots. And there's people that I respect their information who I dislike as people. So yeah, there's people that dislike, I don't care. They're, I can't change their minds, so I don't give a shit. Um, they, if they want to ignore me or dismiss the valid scientific, clinically research-based information, it's kind of not my problem. Um, it's theirs. And so they, they can do what they want to do. And if they don't like it and go complain about it, just more publicity for me because controversy builds interest. So I'm okay with it. Nice. Um, so I kind of want to kind of dive into this because like, like with the menstrual cycle, I've always kind of been curious about it because I've tr like, I would say 90% of my clientele are all like middle-aged moms. And yeah. I've heard everything from a client telling me that she didn't have her first period when she was 18. And then a friend of mine who knows I'm a coach and always asks my opinion about her health, where she didn't have a period for four months. She thought she was pregnant. She went to a doctor and the doctor's like, here's birth control pills. I'll fix it. So I'm kind of right. curious, like what you found when you were starting writing this book and what are some things that women should know about their menstrual cycle and what's, wrong and what's normal if that all made sense <laughs> yeah and, and you know even this this is interesting like realize when i got into this other than i mean clearly i've had girlfriends and relationships and, and i've trained people and i can have like observationally i can i've seen some of the patterns but like i didn't know what the terminology was i didn't know what the words meant i like i was starting from dead scratch because i don't have one and i get that um, I've run into a lot of women online and, and maybe this is an American thing. I, I can't speak, but a lot of women aren't even familiar with this terminology. And it's simply because in the U S our attitude towards sex and sex education is completely screwed up. Like it's just not talked about. So it's not, I'm not saying that they're ignorant or like, or like, it's not that they're just simply not taught this. Um, so, you know, so the menstrual cycle in brief, on average, 28 days can vary from 24 to 32. Some women are machines. Some women every month, same length. Other women, it can vary from short to long to good to bad. Younger women, typically a little bit less stable menstrual cycles. As women get older, it tends to become a little more stable. Um, the, the overall picture, uh, 28 days, day one is menstruation, just by definition really kind of the only day women can know for sure where they're at in their cycle. Uh, the first half of the phase is called the follicular phase. This is when the follicle, the egg starts to develop under the, the, the follicle stimulating hormone, as the name suggests is what's doing this. Estrogen is the primary hormone, starts to kind of sweep up three or four days before ovulation. Big spike, that's when the egg drops. It implants, that's ovulation, right? That's kind of the halfway point when the egg is released, implants, and starts to form the endometrial lining. At this point, you enter the luteal phase, uh, named corpus luteum is what, what is what is formed, starts releasing progesterone. So estrogen is dropped after the big, big pulse. It and progesterone start to sweep up. Progesterone is higher at every point. Uh, to about the midway point, and then it goes back down uh, into week four, which is typically when PMS, premenstrual syndrome, will occur if it's going to happen. 
And if she has not become pregnant, you menstruate and you start all over again. So that's kind of the gross, the uh, gross is the wrong word. This is, <laughs> sorry about that. This is the overall picture of the cycle. Um, there are variations in this. Like I said, it can vary from 24 to 32 days. Uh, on, uh, in general, the, the structure is the same. You know, women can have relatively higher or low levels of each hormone. There are other changes that go on. Testosterone, which is pretty pretty low in women, is flat. Shows a little bit of spike in ovulation, which is probably actually to increase your sex drive because that's when she's most fertile. Um, even, and then in the second half, you know, progesterone may be relatively higher than quote unquote normal. So in a sense, there's a normal menstrual cycle, but in other sense, there's not. Every woman may be subtly different. Any given woman can be different from month to month to month. So the only thing the only thing that's really normal in this sense is that the cycle exists. An egg is released as it's supposed to be, um, implants, and then you have you know you have menstruation. So so eumenorrhea, which just means you just means good. So eumenorrhea means that the menstrual cycle is present and everything is quote unquote normal. Um, Number, any number of changes occur, right? The follicular half, the first two weeks, is very significantly different than the second two weeks, the luteal phase. So during the first half, insulin sensitivity is very good. Women use more carbohydrates than fats. Their appetite is very well controlled, especially right before ovulation. That three or four days before ovulation is when their, their hunger uh, is the lowest. And amusing trivia I came across, there was a theory that has been since backed up that is that that big burst in estrogen, women's desire for food and drink goes down so that they may become more interested in, shall we say, pleasures of the flesh. Um, because again, this is when they're most fertile. And they've even shown women's hips swing differently at ovulation in a more sexually attractive way. They're more likely to give out their phone numbers. They're attracted to different men in terms of their facial structure. Like the entire cycle is based around getting a woman pregnant. In the luteal phase, uh, insulin resistance occurs, so less carbohydrates are burned, blood sugar becomes unstable, more fat is used for fuel. Fat storage is really increased during the luteal phase, and although metabolic rate goes up a little bit, this is when hunger and cravings occur. Um, and those, those that increase in food intake can drastically overcome the small increase in body temperature goes up slightly. Uh, course, as we swing into the, the late luteal phase, that fourth week, if premenstrual syndrome is going to occur, that's usually when it hits, right? That's where you see emotional lability, mood swings, fatigue, lethargy, sleep is disrupted, um, depression at the extreme, and cramping may often begin and can range from mild to can't get out of bed for three days. Uh, the extremes are something called premenstrual dysphoric disorder, PMDD. This is a case where the cramps are debilitating pain. Women may experience suicidal thoughts. Frequently, they have to give antidepressants during the fourth week for this. But even this kind of points out, right? So let me back up. Men, month to month to month, they're just the same every day, right? They're just the same. Any day a dude comes into the gym, his testosterone level – I. I it changes a little bit during the month or a little bit, whatever. The differences are minimal. He is the same asshole every day in the gym that he from puberty till the time he hits 60, right? That is men are have one long cycle. They are an asshole from puberty till 65 years old. Women have a monthly cycle that they're changing. So a guy's the same every day. Uh, a woman, and you've probably seen this as a coach, 
Her energy levels may change. Her mood may change. Her trainability may change. Um, there's, there are frequently patterns in like maximal strength. I had a trainee years ago when I was first thinking about this and like right after menstruation, strong as hell. She could set personal best. She felt good. Weights would fly up. Week two, be a little bit weaker. Week three after ovulation, she'd be a little bit stronger, probably the testosterone spike. And then going into week four, holy shit, she went, she couldn't lift 60% of her max. And her coordination went out the window. Like she couldn't, she couldn't do, and when I finally figured out this pattern, I just, week four, I would just have her goof off on machines for a week because she couldn't squat. She couldn't, she couldn't, she did not have the coordination to do it. And then as soon as she started menstruating, boom, PRs in two days. Other women I've trained, no, no response whatsoever. They may be basic, you know, slight variations, which are normal, but by and large, no effect. So women in that sense, way more variable than men. You may have one female trainee who's just like, I don't even think PMS exists because she's never experienced it. Something like 35 to 40% of women experience PMS, 10 to 20 experience PMDD, maybe a little less than that. Women that have never experienced it can't understand it. Women that have experienced it may not be able to get out of bed. As a coach, as a trainer, I think you do see more variability among women for that reason alone. Um, even if that's not there, these month to month shifts in their appetite and their fuel use and all these other things can, can really drastically change. So you've got not only the, the, like I said, the, the, the variance between women and men, but the huge variance between any given woman. Um, so the, these are all things that I can sort of describe the general pattern or an average pattern, but for any individual woman or their coach, they have to be their own best scientist. They have to track what's happening and if you're if you're doing bodybuilding training it's not so big of a deal but if you're doing like maximum strength training or explosive training you know a woman who might be able to do 90 percent in her strongest week if her strength has dropped 10 percent during the fourth week of the menstrual cycle and you give her triples at 90 percent she cannot complete that workout that 90 percent is now 100 percent of her her maximum for that week bodybuilding is all 75, 80% range. If her strength's down 10%, she can do the workout. It'll suck, but she can get through it. So these are all these variations that, that are really, uh, I even, uh, I've got a nurse practitioner dealing with some of my own, uh, my own issues. And she said, yeah. And my, and a therapist friend of mine, he's like, yeah, for some women during who are on like bipolar medication or whatever in the fourth week of the cycle, they may have to add an antidepressant for that week alone. My therapist told me, he goes, yeah, any given week, I don't know who's walking through the door because if she's in a certain week of the cycle, if she's in tears at five minutes in, uh, that's who I'm, that's who I'm working with today. And men just don't have that issue. They're just kind of a flat line. So that's just kind of an overall picture. From that point, we get what I call hormonal modifiers, right? Now in men, fine. Some guys have lower testosterone. Some guys have higher testosterone, we're talking about a matter of degrees here, right? A dude with 300 nanograms per deciliter, which is low normal, and a dude with a 900, you can train them differently. The guy with 900 is going to grow better, make faster gains. But again, we're talking about degrees. Women, okay, so the normal menstrual cycle, eumenorrhea, can become oligomenorrhea, which is an, a lengthened cycle. That's a cycle between 35 to 90 days. That 
some days of that cycle will look just like the quote unquote normal menstrual cycle. And let, let me make it clear. When I say normal, I don't mean these others are abnormal, like standard menstrual cycle, probably a better word. Some of those days of the oligo in oligomenorrhea may look identical to the standard cycle. And other days look like noise. The hormones are showing no particular pattern. There's no way to predict when or if a, a menstrual cycle will occur, what her mood is. That can occur out of eumenorrhea. That can occur out of it. Or some women simply are oligomenorrheic, typically because they have elevated testosterone levels. And that gets into polycystic ovary syndrome. This is a very common metabolic dysfunction in women, frequently marked by elevated testosterone levels. And by that, they may have two to three times the normal level. This impacts the menstrual cycle, causes insulin resistance, more of a male-like body fat pattern. Those women are amazing to train in the gym. They make better strength gains, better muscular gains. They typically train more like men. Um, the Russians used to adjust. The Chinese are now selecting their, their female athletes based on physical characteristics that suggest higher testosterone levels because you can train these women more like men and they make better results even before you put steroids in. So oligomenorrhea adds to that. Insulin resistance, they made different diet. you know. And if you see that as a trainer or a coach, an oligomenorrheic, sorry, a, a, a hyperandrogenic PCOS woman who wants to get big and strong, and they're often drawn towards like power, strength, power sports, because psychologically they're wired towards that. They're amazing. You can just train the absolute shit out of them, and they're great. But if a woman with PCOS doesn't want that, and you give her heavy weight training, she may already be carrying more muscle that she doesn't want. For her weight loss to improve fertility and health parameters, you may want to adjust her training and her diet. So there you get some different, and it's not like there aren't different goals for, for the, 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 the eumenorrheic woman. So that's oligomenorrhea. There's also a group of women that may have 20 to 30% more testosterone than normal. They're being found in sport quite frequently. Um, actually, PCOS women make up something like 35% of female gold medalists. It is, an, and that makes sense, right? They have, a, they have an inherent advantage over women without, with lower testosterone levels. There is this subgroup of women that may have 20 to 30% higher testosterone, more anabolic, higher bone density, gain muscle better, yada, yada, yada. Then there's amenorrhea. This is the loss of the menstrual cycle. This can occur for a number of medical reasons. There's all kinds of things. Women's reproductive systems are way more complex than men. There's all kinds of stuff that can go wrong but it commonly occurs in response to lowered calories, excessive exercise. It's not related to body fat percentage. If, we want to, if you want to get back to that, that's a complicated issue. Then you get into birth control. Birth control will be months because uh, there's a synthetic estrogen. There's at least eight different synthetic progestins, right? The synthetic progesterones that differ in their effects based on when they were made and what they're based on in terms of their effects, the androgen receptor, progesterone receptor, cortisol receptor, mineral and corticoid receptor. There are both combined birth control that has both. There are progestin-only birth control. There's the pill, the patch, the injection, the implant that goes in the back of the arm, and the cervical ring, all of which have slightly different effects and can contain any number of different progestins. So birth control is a nightmare. <laughs> based on some cause insulin resistance, some don't. Some can cause fat gains, some don't. Some can increase hunger, some can't. Um, then you get into the aging process, which is menopause, right? That's what occurs in the 40s or 50s when a woman's reproductive system shuts down. There's perimenopause, which is early and late, which is when the system is kind of starting to wind down. Then there's the menopause itself. 
then when postmenopausal women on or off of hormonal replacement therapy are different. I'm covering all of those. And now you can understand why my life is hell. Because for every topic, I have to address each of those to at least some degree. Now, now they, they tend to cluster like PCOS, some kinds of birth control, or menopause that are all insulin resistant states. So they're more similar than not. Insulin, you know, I've grouped them to to try to simplify this. Um, This is also why research on women is so much harder to do and why there's less of it. Because technically you have to test every one of these situations. To even compare a, a a, a normally cycling woman, you have to look at least at the follicular and luteal phase because frequently they're different. If you're going to compare them to men, you have to do both of those and also study men because frequently women will look unlike men, sorry, will respond metabolically by look by, I mean like metabolically, physiologically, they may be different than men in the the follicular phase, but more or less the same in the luteal phase or vice versa. Um, I, I know a guy who does exercise physiology research and they were testing women, brought the woman in for her exercise test. She had started her period a day early. He said, see in a month. Because now her physiological status has changed completely. Men, you can bring in any day of the month and it doesn't make a shit's worth of difference. So, like, that is just like an overview of the complexity of what's going on. Because each of these hormonal modifiers impact a woman's quote-unquote normal physiology to a greater or lesser degree. And in men, like I said, one hormone, it drops with age to some degree. That's it. It's either lower, it's either lower high. That's kind of it for men. So, so yeah, um, women are just more, not only different than men, but far more variable um, in on just because there's so many different things going on. That was a long answer, but it was a lot of great information. Um, yeah. But what I was going to get into is like when you describe the women in their fourth week of menstruation when you know they have yeah. symptoms where they can't even get out of the bed and I've even had a client where she's like yeah when I'm on my period I don't leave my house because I can't function. So what's going on there? Like what can women do to kind of ease those symptoms or if they yeah. can at all? Actually, yeah, I mean that's god that's been been an area of perennial research since about forever. So going back to, you know, I kind of described the, the, the hormonal changes during the cycle. I'm going to focus here on the luteal phase, right? So first half of the cycle, estrogen and progesterone kind of sweep up to a peak and say, well, let's say that the follicular phase, I'm sorry, the luteal phase is 14 days, which it is on average. So the halfway point at day seven, estrogen and progesterone hit a peak. Then they start to come back down. As they come down, you're starting to see changes in neurochemistry. So serotonin levels drop. We know that serotonin is involved enormously in mood, can be involved in depression. Um, serotonin is really complicated. It, it actually is more of a general inhibitory hormone. So as it goes down, if you're prone to mood sw- or whatever, those tend to get worse. Like if you're an aggressive person and serotonin, you'll become aggressive. If you're a depressive person, you become depressive. It just dopamine drops, which is involved. It's part of why the cravings and stuff go up. Um, since you're losing estrogen signaling, this is a big part of it. And, you know, there's there's a lot of interest, especially in the postmenopausal woman. Um, and there's controversy over hormone replacement, which don't want to get into. 
a lot of the early conclusions not entirely correct in terms of, but regardless, estrogen is critical for uh, actually women's cognitive abilities on top of mood and everything else. And I, this trainee of mine I mentioned who lost her coordination, every month she would just be like, I lose my words. Like her, she just can't find her, her lane and that's, that's dropping estrogen. Uh, the cramps tend to be caused by uh, prostaglandin release. These are little short chemical chemical that are causing uterine contractions as it starts to, to shed the, the endometrial lining where the egg is. So, so what they've kind of looked at or what I've looked at is, so like you could consider 5-HTP, which will raise serotonin levels and improve mood. They've even done a couple studies where they just gave them like sugary carbo drinks. That tends to raise serotonin, that improved mood. You could use something to raise dopamine levels. Uh, there's an herb called Vitex Cagnus that's been really used for a lot of years. Um, they've looked at uh, increasing calcium to 1,200 milligrams has an effect. Uh, I believe magnesium is another one. Um, you can control those uterine contractions with nothing more than aspirin or non-steroidal. Basically, anything that inhibits prostaglandin production seems to help. Um, increasing estrogen signaling with either, you know, a serving of soy protein a day or like uh, isolated phytoestrogen supplements. It's like a lot of women will get almost the equivalent of hot flashes during during that week. And it's it's identical to what menopausal women are getting and it's due to the, the reduction in estrogen signaling. So you can, you can kind of address it that way to at least some degree. Um, regular exercise has been shown to improve PMS symptoms. But just as with, you know, you'll read that, oh, exercise improves uh, depression, right? You know what the last thing you want to do when you're depressed is? Go to the gym. Same thing here. It's great to say that exercise improves PMS uh, symptoms when you don't want to leave the house for either mood or physical reasons. It's not particularly good advice. Um, <laughs> so uh, fish oils, no surprise there, have been shown to kind of help with the symptoms. So there, there's a number of supplements that can certainly help with that. Uh, the blood sugar thing can really cause a lot of mood swings because it, it becomes more unstable. So uh, having a little bit of fruit every day to kind of help keep blood sugar stable can certainly help. Um, one thing that, that really goes unappreciated, women's sleep patterns get really messed up during uh, the fourth week of the cycle, that quote-unquote PMS week. Um, they're more sensitive to light on their skin and interrupting melatonin. So like good sleep hygiene, sleep in a very dark, cool room, maybe consider melatonin supplements because, um, of course, low, you know, short sleep or poor sleep is not going to help with any of this uh, mood or somatic feelings. So like I said, and in some cases, you got to go the medication route. You know, when, when you get to such a severe level, you might be looking at antidepressants for mood. Frequently, they will use birth control simply to regulate the cycle because at this point, you're essentially controlling the cycle kind of synthetically and avoiding a lot of those hormonal swings. So they do that quite frequently. Um, I don't really get into the medication end of things. And in the book, it's really beyond what I consider my scope of knowledge or interest, quite honestly. So I, I try not to talk. You know, I mention it, but that's something that's better addressed with a physician. You know, certainly try some of the supplement stuff. Um, so calcium, magnesium, fish oils, uh, either enough carbohydrates, fruit, you know, 5-HTP for serotonin. Um, and if that's, if it's still just too severe, um, you may, women may have to actually go down, you know, a medical route and they may just have, it's either that or lose a week per month uh, to, to not just not being able to function, which clearly 
even outside of the gym and diet situation, it's like this interrupts women's work patterns. This interrupts every aspect of woman's life. And these things are still just not really taken into account. You know, most jobs are not going to go, cool, just take a week off every month. That's just not really allowed or considered. Um, but it is a very real reality for a small percentage of women that it's just truly physically, mentally, psychologically debilitating. Um, and I don't really know the reasons for, for what causes this. There's a lot hormonally going on. Some women are just more sensitive to it in the same way people are sensitive to just show that variability and if it's there it's there what's your uh, opinion about naturopaths because i know a lot of the women i've trained when they go to their regular medical doctor and they're having these symptoms and they can't fix it they go down the naturopathic route and i was wondering if there's any kind of validity to it or just I, I, you know, I'm not a huge fan. What, what I've seen, I think, tends to be a lot of kind of like woo medicine. And I mean, don't get me wrong. You go to 10 different doctors, you're getting 10 different diagnoses. But you go to 10 different naturopaths and you're going to get 10 different, in my opinion, kind of made up, you know, made up symptoms or solutions. So, I, you know, it's like anything. I, I don't want to sound too shitty. It's just like, I'm sure there's elements of truth to what they're doing. And I think there's a lot of elements of made up BS to what they're doing. So, um, I, I, I don't want to say that women, I don't know that there's a gender difference if women are more prone to that. Cause I think you see a lot of, I've seen men in other areas go down that route. So personally, not a huge fan, but I understand that when you've got a debilitating situation that that is not getting treated properly medically. I can see that route. One thing I will say about this, a lot of physicians, you know, unless you're going to an OBGYN, unless you're going, and even then, a lot of physicians, and let's be honest, male, male physicians either don't know much about this or they flat out dismiss it, right? There is still very much, there is a sexism, there is a a, there's an aspect of that in medicine that you frequently have male doctors who don't, you know, they have whatever they learned in medical school that don't know shit about this, but because they have frequently have that medical attitude of I am doctor, I am God. I, I have a friend who actually, she went to a male physician, this was years ago, and she was bleeding. And she knew what menstrual blood looks like. Women know what their own, and he was like, ah, you're just menstruating. She's like, no, this is not menstrual blood. This is different. But in his mind, a woman bleeding, she's menstruating. She said, look, I know. And he's like, fine, go do a urine sample. And, and of course she was right. But there is such a history of, of, you know, women go to a physician and they're like, I'm having mood swings. I'm having this. I'm having that. Oh, it's all in your head. You're just being hysterical. Um, or, or whatever, or histrionic. And I think, I do think a lot of medical, uh, a lot of physicians either have, you know, older information because they can't keep up with everything. They may not have a perspective for it. I think women will find that female physicians have a very different attitude towards this. And they're even finding that research done by men frequently draws different conclusions than research done by women for somewhat logical reasons. Um, and, Oh, even though by OBGYNs, certainly they know more than, than the, the GP. When you start to get into diet and, and the effects of birth control on training and fat loss and stuff, they don't have that background. Because I, I have women in my Facebook group ask all the time. And I mean, I've seen what little research is there. And they're like, my physician 
even my OBGYN, because they're not sports medicine doctors. I mean, I wouldn't expect them to. But unfortunately, a lot of women, if they do, are, are going to a male general physician. He just doesn't know. He doesn't have the background or the specific knowledge. Because like I said, women's reproductive systems are just staggeringly complicated. There's so many things that can go wrong um, medically and otherwise that can disrupt the cycle, that can cause an extended cycle. And frequently you're looking at metal, you know, PCOS tends to, for some reason, not get diagnosed because it's diagnosis of exclusion. If a woman's got a lengthened cycle, you test everything else first. And if none of those are true, you kind of go, well, it's probably PCOS. And then, I mean, you can do specific testing. Uh, another example, women are more prone to depression than men and frequently antidepressants. And as often as not, it's related to low thyroid status. Women are already prone to lower thyroid levels than men. Estrogen can lower them further because of some binding proteins. Birth control has some weird effects. But uh, low thyroid or, or hypothyroidism is, the, I believe, the most uh, ignored or missed cause of uh, depression in women. And doctors don't think to test it. Or you get the doctors who look at blood work and go, your blood work's normal. It's all in your head. Well, <laughs> no. Um, and, and so I, I do understand why women are often looking for someone who's maybe a little bit more open in that regards. Unfortunately, I think, it, well, like I said, I believe there's probably some some element of truth to naturopathy and some element of woo to it. And, and that's all good and well. Um, you know, you go online, there's, there's a particularly... Uh, there's a group called Stop the Thyroid Madness. They actually have some really good information. And you've got women on there that have, quote unquote, normal thyroid levels, but they still feel like shit. And doctors tend to treat the numbers rather than the patient in the modern world. It's changing. And the tests are law. If your tests are normal, it doesn't matter how you feel. That's just all in your head. And these people take their treatment into their own hands. And when they get their thyroid to high normal versus low normal, it's life changing. I mean, men, men run into this too. A guy will go in with 350 nanograms per deciliter testosterone. That's low normal. 300 is the cutoff. If you've got 305, you're normal. If you've got 295, you need treatment. Like there's this weird, and doctors will be like, ah, you don't feel too good? Meh, whatever. Eat better, go work out. These guys get on hormone replacement therapy. Even if they get to 600, mid-range, life-changing. Their mood is better. Sexual function is better. Everything is better. For women, frequently, it's it's the same. Those those changes within the the, the normal range, quote unquote, because there's so much variability. So yeah, like I said, that's me hedging my bets. Okay. Um, um, you know, and if it works, it works. I think to my problem, and this, again, this is true of medical treatment. If it's working fine. What I see happen altogether too often in some of the quote-unquote alternative treatments is they put you on this regimen that may or may not be made up frequently, and six months down the road, they're like, oh, it takes time. I'm sorry, I don't buy that. I think that's a cop-out. It's the, that, that's the, oh, I'm going to put you on this diet, but you got to feel worse before you feel better because your body's getting rid of the toxins. Oh, bullshit. If it's not working, it'd be like putting someone on a fat loss diet and six months later going, haven't lost any, just got to give it time. Just, you just got to be patient. Bullshit. If you're not seeing some kind of change within a reasonable time frame, 
you need to go try something else because what you're doing is not going to magically start four months from now if it's not if you're not noticing some change within one or two cycles. Um, you know, even most of the studies on this are like we supplemented for eight, 12 weeks, and usually they just wait so they can see a change. The change has always occurred, right? If you're six months in with your naturopathic or whatever, or medical treatment, or magic vitamin and mineral regimen, and nothing's changed, it's not helping. <laughs> you need to go try something else. Yeah, like like you said, like it's you can go to ten different doctors and sure. might not get anywhere, and then you try one naturopath and maybe sure. got something out of it but i always tell like my clients that you know give it a month if nothing changes then maybe it's not for you absolutely and i think that's you know and and as long as it's not doing any harm i'm okay with it in some cases i don't know if naturopathy is this bad um i have seen so for people that don't know and I, this is not the time or the place to get into it i was diagnosed as with bipolar 2 it's like bipolar light uh, a few years ago, and I'm medicated, and it's part of why I looked back at my behavior over the last 20 years ago. Wow, yeah, I was really a dick for no reason. Um, and I actually wrote an apology to the internet in 2015 because I looked back at my behavior and I was like, yeah, I got to take responsibility for this. But I, I briefly went to a bipolar support meeting. All right, and bipolar is in clinic in horrible depression. They're shitty, shitty diseases. Like I, I feel like mine was pretty easy to treat, and I feel almost guilty about that. And like so many things, people get desperate for a cure because it's horrible. The medication can be awful. And unfortunately, that leads to a lot of quack remedies like cancer is the same way. A lot, you know, people, they just they're desperate for a cure. And I would see these people and they're like, oh, you know, my alternative medical practitioner told me to stop my medication and use herbs and acupuncture. And I'm like, that's that's criminal. It's one thing to do no harm. And whatever, if what you're giving someone is not hurting them, eh, whatever, it's money out of your pocket. If you were giving someone that kind of medical advice and telling them to go off their medication because it's blocking their chi and preventing your magic whatever from working, I got a real problem with that because that's doing someone a lot of real actual harm. But there was there were people going to like the magic vitamin mineral doctor and they were on this magical regimen. And they're like, yeah, I've been on it six months. Can't say I've really noticed anything. Yeah, look, my meds only took three weeks. Like, like I'm sorry, stuff that works works relatively quickly unless there's something really, really, unless you've been misdiagnosed. If it's not working at the six-month mark, I got news for you. It's not going to magically start working at the year mark. Yeah. No, no mineral deficiency, no vitamin deficiency takes that long to correct. Maybe iron, but maybe iron status. But anyway, so I think we're on the same page with this one. But yeah, like I think if your alternative like practitioner tells you to go off your medication, that's kind of a big red flag. And I'm fortunate yeah. that I found naturopaths in my area that are not like that. And I've had conversations with them where they're like, I want to work with your medical doctor. I want to be part of your team so I can supplement whatever yeah. I can to help you. And, and, and like, I think perfect. that's great. Yeah, because. I I do agree, certainly, that doctors, uh, I think it's changing a little bit. Doctors do come from a, I mean, they come from a medical background, right? Surgeons cut, orthopedists drill bones, and doctors medicate, right? There are very few doctors who will look at nutritional status. Like, at most now, they'll at least look at vitamin D, which is a step in the right damn direction. But that is not really where their mentality is. They don't, they have very minimal nutritional knowledge, it doesn't really occur to them to address those kinds of issues. 
And those play a role, right? Even going back to my own issues. So one of the, when I was diagnosed, they, they ran a genetic test on me and they, you know, they have found certain genetic markers for certain uh, mental illnesses. I'm half Middle Eastern and it's very common for uh, Middle Easterners to have a, a mutation in what's called the MTHFR gene, which I think is hilarious because it looks like motherfucker and I just, that makes me giggle on every level. But the long and the short of it is uh, folic acid, one of the B vitamins, is not converted in my brain and this results in a brain deficiency in folic acid. So one of the things they gave me was a medical nutritional supplement called Deplin, and it is a methylfolate supplement that can that basically provides what my brain is not making because of my genetic mutation. I was lucky to go to a uh, clinic that very research based. Like when we talked, they were like, "Here's what you need to be doing: vitamin D, exercise, fish oils." And I was like, I've been doing all that for a decade. And they were like, that's probably why you didn't crack up till you were 44, because you've been doing all the right things. But they looked at that. Most physicians don't, because they don't have that background. If a naturopath is working with that and addressing potential nutrient deficiencies, there can be absorption issues. Some people lack a cofactor to absorb B12. This can lead to what's called pernicious anemia. This can cause a tremendous number of neurological issues, tremor, lack of coordination, most people wouldn't pick that up because testing for the cofactor is just a bitch and a half. But they might consider, oh, there's a specific type of B12 that gets past this. Or they used to do B12 injections or sublingual or whatever. So, yeah, if they're willing to work with that and to complement it, all for it. Absolutely, because I think they can address things dietarily or the microbiome or whatever you want to get into. So, yeah, I got no problem with that at all. Now, the other thing I wanted to bring up is, like, how much does stress cause a disruption in a women's, like, women's cycles? It's funny that you ask that because I'm actually editing the chapter on stress as we speak, and I'm stuck on a section, so ha-ha, the chapter is stressing me out. <laughs> um, this gets really complicated, so the answer is enormously. The question is mechanistically, right? So, so just real briefly about menstrual cycle disruption is which there's kind of levels of disruption. You go from a normal cycle to what's called anovulation. That means the egg is not being released. The problem is that looks normal. The cycle is still the same length. You still menstruate. Nothing looks abnormal. Then you get what's called a luteal phase. I'm sorry, luteal phase defect is first. The luteal phase, progesterone doesn't go up enough, looks totally normal. Anovulation is next, looks totally normal. Then you can potentially get oligomenorrhea that can develop, and then you get amenorrhea where the cycle just goes away. Um, used to be thought that was related to body fat percentage, right? They saw that in lean athletes. Turns out not to be. You can find women at 28% body fat with no cycle, women at 12% with a cycle. It turns out to be mostly related to what's called energy availability. And what that means, energy availability is calorie intake minus exercise calorie expenditure, right? This isn't energy balance. This isn't calories in versus out. It's specifically intake minus exercise. And the, the leftover is the number of calories that the body sees, like has available to run all normal processes, right? Keep your heart beating, keep your blood flowing, keep your muscles muscling, your organs, your liver working, all this other stuff. And it has to prioritize, right? If it has low energy availability, 
If your brain stops, you die. If your heart stops, you die. If your nails stop growing, you do not die. And frequently people on extreme diets, their nails don't grow as well. Their hair falls out. It's actually called telogen effluvium. Look it up. I didn't make up the word. And in women, when this occurs, right, the reproductive system is not required for her survival. And frequently that, so, so this low energy availability is kind of the fundamental cause of menstrual cycle dysfunction. And this has been shown, I, I talk about this, there's a whole chapter on this, and that's just kind of the, the overview. However, they have found a subgroup of women who don't seem to be dieting, who aren't losing weight, who aren't exercising excessively, who for what seems to be purely psychological reasons do not have a menstrual cycle. And they tend to find a kind of a cluster of, the, of, 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 of psychological effects, including uh, narcissism, a large uh, uh, a need for external validation, right? And I just want to take this will sound snarky, and it's it's meant to be a little snarky, but it's also true. I think if you look in the physique community, whether male or female, I've just described ninety percent of physique competitors. Narcissists who care only about what other people think about how they look, right? You add to that high stress reactivity, uh, what a poor poor ability to cope with daily hassles. There's a, several others I just happened to write down, but, and that's just in the general public, right? Athletes have an additional set of psychological stressors, worrying about what they're eating, their training programs, travel, competition. And this seems to cause what, what they call a psychogenic type of, of menstrual cycle dysfunction because what people forget, or you, I'm sure you're aware of, in a very real sense, all stress is the same to the body, whether it's physical stress, dietary stress, or mental stress. Humans are the only species that can mental ourselves into chronic stress, right? We worry about taxes. We worry about our mortgage. We worry about interpersonal relationships, life stress, family stress, dogs don't give a shit, right? They don't, they don't, they don't worry about tomorrow, right? Animals don't, humans are the only people that can do this. And among, and all stressors turn out to have a very similar hormonal response, right? Hanselia showed this in the twenties. Nobody believed him. Now we know it's true and it has to do with cortisol, right? So what you see is these kind of psychogenically, psychologically stressed women already have these chronically elevated levels of cortisol because they are, as I like to call it, high strung, right? You can see these women online all the time. Go to any weight loss forum, my Facebook group, whatever it is, and they are typing in all caps with exclamation points, it has been three days and I have not lost any weight. Like you can, you can hear the tension in their typing, if that makes any sense. You can see them sitting at their keyboard wrapped into knots, because their weight has not dropped in three days. And all they're doing is creating this staggering amount of psychological stress, chronic psychological stress, that is can, can inhibit the menstrual cycle in and of itself. So the short answer is absolutely. This, this, this seems to be what's going on in this, this subgroup of women. Now part of the problem is frequently they show a little bit different food intake it may be energetic. One researcher thinks all stress is energetic. I don't think I accept that at face value because you can be at calorie balance and still be stressed as shit and it can cause health problems. I don't, I don't agree with her entirely, 
Um, and, and kind of keeping with that, when these women go through cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a way of teaching coping skills and a different way of, of kind of thinking about things, something like 85% of women in one study regain normal menstrual cycle function. So without changing their eating or activity habits, just by changing how they saw the world and thought and coping skills, that renormalized their menstrual cycle. So yes, stress has an enormous impact on this. There's another issue getting a little bit off topic. Actually, let me come back to that. What then happens is the psychological stress combines with the exercise and diet stress, right? I call these, these women psychogenically stressed dieters. They are pre-stressed. Before they even think about fat loss, they are pre-stressed. There's also, they often show what's called high dietary restraint, right? There's this, it's a, it's a construct where it's for people that are supremely preoccupied with their eating and body weight, right? They're not necessarily dieting. They're just concerned all the time about it. And they've been shown to have 10% higher cortisol levels than women without high dietary restraint, just from mental stress. That adds to that other set of profiles, right? So these women start, these, these add up, right? Every stress adds to the body's total load. If you then add family stress, maybe the partner, whether boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, maybe they're not supportive. Maybe they don't even understand why, why, why do you want physique? Why, why are you doing this, right? You get, especially younger, trying to diet, trying to train. Oh, come on, man, just, we're going to go get pizza. You can break your diet. You don't need, just, just, you can skip that training session, right? You may, either you're going out and breaking, doing something you don't want to do, or you're having to avoid social interaction because you can't, you're too afraid of, of being blown off your diet or whatever it is. So you get this huge, and these combined all together, right? There's a couple studies, actually Eric Helms was nice enough to shoot to me because I hadn't seen them. They've shown that people that are under high stress conditions don't make as good as strength gains in the gym. They don't recover as quickly from weight training because they're already stressed out and they're what's called the allostatic load is too high. So you get these women that are already psychologically pre-stressed, tightly wound, then they decide to diet and exercise. Now for some reason, they tend to be drawn to the extremes. I'm gonna cut calories to 800, and I'm gonna start at two hours of aerobic exercise a day. You've seen it, and I've seen it, and you've trained them, and I've trained them, and nothing happens. Partly because they're overstressing their body, partly because all that cortisol causes water retention, severe water retention, right? We've known since the 50s that, that there's a, a starvation edema where you hold a ton of water. This just makes it worse, right? Uh, I would also add that this type of thing, this low energy availability and stress, women can start to impair their menstrual cycle function within five days. Thyroid status can drop, metabolic rate can drop, the hormones regulating, five days. Five days of shitty dieting can cause problems. Let me, let me reiterate that, five days. So these women that are already a little bit tightly wound jump into low calories and two hours of aerobics a day. Within five days, they're already causing problems. Metabolic rate will decrease, thyroid will decrease, menstrual cycle function. It won't become impaired, but the hormones start to get affected. They start retaining water. Their weight is not changing for days, for weeks. It's spiking up and down and up and down. And the menstrual cycle adds to that, right? Water balance changes throughout the cycle. It's up right before ovulation. It's up right during the, during the PMS week. Women who are not, don't realize these day-to-day -day changes or week-to-week changes, that just adds to their stress. 
because they're dieting, everything is going on schedule, and then boom, they're up five pounds. I'm like, fuck this. Why would I keep doing this? I'm, I'm deprived and hungry, and my weight's up five pounds. It's like, it's just, it's water. Just, just relax. So their weight's not changing. So what do they do? Add more cardio, cut calories harder, and it just gets worse. It just becomes this vicious cycle. And I had a client years ago who did this and she started, she told me she was eating 400 calories a day. Breakfast is half an egg. I don't even know how you eat half an egg. Like two hours of cardio a day. And I didn't know shit. I was in my 20s. I knew that too much exercise and too few calories caused problems. I didn't know why, but it kind of didn't matter. I told her for weeks, you got to eat more and exercise less. And she's like, but how does that work? I go, what you're doing is not working, right? What, what, What do you have to lose? Wouldn't listen. Went on vacation. What do you do on vacation? You eat more and you don't exercise. She came back, boom, five pounds down. Just like, what did I tell? What have I been telling you? Went right back to dieting like a crazy person. So you get this really horrible cycle, and breaking it is really hard, right? These are the women that when they finally crack, they have that, they raise their calories, boom, they wake up the next day and their weights drop, right? They get that whoosh phenomenon. My advice for years for with those kind of women, like you need to get drunk or get stoned and get laid because you got to chill because the more stress you have, the worse it's going to be. Right. And, and I did this when I was younger. I'm very like, I had that kind of personality. And as I've gotten older, the more relaxed I got about my diet, the less I stressed about it, the better my results were because you're just not causing this, this pre-stressed state. Um, that's where if you can get them to, you know, cycle their calories, do the refeed, but they just won't do it. Like that's the thing, the ones who need it the most, good luck getting them to do it. So yeah, stress is disastrous for any number of levels and it can actually spin so far out of control. You know, I, I don't want to get into the whole adrenal fatigue thing. This is in the book. But eventually, if, if you overdrive the cortisol system too hard for too long, it eventually just shuts down. The body is trying to protect itself. And then you cause potentially permanent problems. So so basically, the way that these psychogenically stressed women, these pre-psychologically, pre-diet psychologically stressed women tend to diet and exercise, not only does it not work in the short term, but in the long term, it can actually, I mean, that's on top of the menstrual cycle dysfunction that occurs. They can really cause some, some problems down the road because just losing the menstrual cycle in the first place, women lose bone density that they may never get back. There's all kinds of health problems. And the longer it remains, the worse. And then if their cortisol, their adrenal system kind of adapts and, and shuts itself off, that's really problematic down the road. So, so yes, that's a long answer to say that stress, extremely disruptive. <laughs> It's, it's funny that you brought up the uh, vacation thing because I remember, I can't remember how many years back this was, I was following a coach and she wanted to do a self-experiment on stress on her body. So she, okay. took, a, she took a month off, she went to Costa Rica and okay. um, what she did was like she had no alarm, she would just like wake up whenever her body would wake up, she would go for a hike or walk on the beach or do a workout and just eat whatever was available. So it was usually like fruit, veggies and meat and then if she wanted to go drink she would drink and then after a month she actually leaned out and lost exactly fat yeah yep and you hear that all the time it's just most people you can't get them to do it like that that's the problem um is you you just can't generally like it's i mean it's fantastic like that's a fantastic you know 
uh, observation to have made, and hopefully she passed that on to her clients. It's just the, the, there's this mentality, and I don't know how much of it is self-imposed. I think a lot of it just comes out of how people think they should diet and, of course, how it's typically recommended to diet, right? Like this is what you just see in the diet literature, and it makes logical sense. Well, if, I, if X amount of effort loses Y amount of weight, well, twice the effort should lose twice the weight. And it's that may occur in the short term, but in the long term, it's actually not the case. And but there's just kind of and that's how people think they should diet. And but again, these are always the people that you're talking to. And it's like they're like, oh, yeah, I'm dieting again. Well, the mere use of the word again should suggest that maybe what you've been doing isn't the most effective approach. Because if it's failing, you know, it's the whole uh, repeating the same behavior with the same result as the definition of insanity or whatever trite nonsense. But it's true. People go through these phases of, yep, super extreme dieting, super extreme exercise, and they blow up, they blow up and they, they burn out. And then the weight comes back and they're just like, well, maybe, maybe you should try it differently this time. There's also a problem. Some women get away with it. Some men get away with it too, right? There is another thing with stress on top of the generalities, huge individual variance in what people, and part of it is our perception, right? This is where stress is, is very different, right? A diet is a diet. Doing an hour of exercise is an hour of exercise, right? It's you can't, from a physiological standpoint, there's not a humongous difference. However, humans can perceive things differently, right? How we perceive stress has a big effect on the effects that it has, right? So some people are more stress reactive. In response to the tiniest slight, the tiniest inconvenience, they lose their mind, right? Go stand in line at the grocery store or the bank and the line is moving slowly. And there's the folk who's just like, yeah, whatever, I'm chill, I got nowhere to be. And there's that one person, fist clenched, just you can see it in their face. These people are ruining my fucking day. How dare I? I do it a little bit, I'll be honest. Right, so you've got that. Some people will overreact to the slightest thing. And other people, you can be in the middle of a disaster and they're just like, I, I got this. Some people, after a stressor, they will return to normal very quickly. Right? Whatever. You got pissed. Eh, cool. Move on with your day. That person in line who's pissed off, three hours later, you will not believe what happened at the store today. They're, they're calling every friend they've got. There's this guy in front of me. God, I cannot believe they wasted it. Like they're still stressed about nothing. Only humans have the ability to do this. And technically you could perceive diet and exercise differently. If you don't like training, if you've got a particularly hard workout, I used to get anxiety attacks before particularly miserable workouts because I just knew how much it was going to hurt. If you know, you, there, there are ways we can add to that through our perception of diet and exercise, but by and large, they're just physiological. But this, the way we perceive stress or perceive certain events, and some of that's probably hardwired, right? Some people have a more overactive stress axis, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, some of this is programmed at birth and trivia. I just found this paper recently. Women are sorry, programmed in utero before birth. Women's systems, if they're exposed to more cortisol while they're, they're in utero before they're born, their systems are more likely to get screwed up than men's. So basically stressed mommies make stressed people. So, so, so this, some of this is hardwired. Some of this can clearly be fixed with therapy, teaching folks to just like take a step back, learn some mindfulness, 
take a few deep breaths, whatever. Look, the fact that the bank line is moving slowly is not the end of the damn world. This can be taught and learned, certainly. So we, you know, humans in as much as we can, we have the cognitive ability to drive ourselves crazy over nothing. We also have the hopeful cognitive ability to learn better coping skills. There's other things you can do to reduce stress, you know, yoga. Some people find massage very, un, very stress-releasing, but even there, what if you're a person who doesn't like being touched or doesn't like being semi-naked in front of strangers? A massage that could be very stress-reducing in one person could be an enormous stressor in another. So there's just all this individual variance, and a lot of that is people just having to figure out you know, what, what are and are not stressors because chronic stress is just – and we live in a very stressful world, and it's getting worse. right? We've got a lot of demands – finances, house, family, kids, our own needs. Um, I would, I would argue, and I've, I've done some podcasts, uh, with women interviewers who who have agreed with me. So I must be right. And, um, I do think women are probably under more overall stress than men in the modern world, right? I don't know if this is the case historically, but we've reached a situation and again, this is I'm, I'm basing this mostly on the U.S. I can't speak to other countries um, for a number of reasons because uh, I like I've watched sort of a lot of uh, feminist ideas develop from the beginning till now. And you know, it went from women should have the right to do what what they're what they want, which fine. To you know, in the the 80s, second wave, it was about women kind of establishing themselves in the workplace, but we've reached a point where we went from women should be able to have everything if they want to, in terms of career, family, whatever, to if you're a woman and you don't have all of that, you're failing. And there's this enormous pressure or there's a financial requirement, right? If you've got kids, you may have need a two-income home. Women are typically tasked with Frequently, the house, you know, taking care of the house, taking care of the kids, taking care of the big kid, i.e. the husband or whatever. Um, so you've got these women that who may be psychologically stressed in the first place, especially if they're kind of that dot your I's, cross your T's kind of person. They have to get up in the morning, tend to the kids, make breakfast, tidy the house, work all day, get their workout in, go home, make dinner, and if they're dieting, especially physique competitors, they may have to make one dinner for themselves, one dinner for the kids, and one dinner for him if they're not being supportive. Tidy the house and somehow get a good night's sleep. And I, I do think you know this is just adding to that, that high allostatic load, that high total stress level frequently before you even get into the diet and training. So I, I think there's an issue potentially going on there. So finding ways to de-stress um, there's also just traditionally women have been, I think this is very much social programming. They're kind of expected to do that. You know, they're, they're kind of expected to get along with other people and, and sort of facilitate the group dynamic. And the idea of being selfish, of making time for themselves is very foreign to them. Because, but I have to, if I don't do this, well, partly because if they don't, it doesn't get done. Um, and I say that as a man whose house is very uh, messy. Yeah, but it's just like for them to be able to take time for themselves, to take a day off, to go like do what, what the trainer you were telling me about, that's just not seen. It's just not considered as a possibility. They have too many obligations. They got play dates and food prep and this and that and the other and maintaining a friend group and a personal group. And yeah, so I, all of this adds up and it can completely overwhelm, uh, overwhelm the system. 
and with very severe consequences. All right, so we're going to end right there, and we'll pick it up right where we left off next time. Hopefully you enjoyed the first part of this two-part episode as Lyle was the first one ever to chat with me for a podcast interview for more than an hour and 15 minutes. We hit a total of two hours and 30 with a lot more questions that I got from Facebook and my own questions. And I really hope you enjoy the second part. And again, I'm going to ask all of you to share this podcast, spread the word. If you have any questions, feel free to email me at rafal at empowerhp.ca. And you can also reach me through social media at Raf Matuszewski, which is spelled R-A-F-M-A-T-U-S-Z-E-W-S-K-I. Remember that. And I will chat and listen to you guys again next week. And until then...